Amen. Thank you, ladies. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out now to our children's church. What a privilege it is to partner with parents in order to uh, offer age, uh, directed age-specific teaching on a Sunday morning. And the rest of us are turning to John chapter 6. I know you probably don't feel this way, some of you might, but there are certain passages of Scripture where when you have the opportunity to preach them, you approach with fear, with a gravity, and an understanding that in this passage of Scripture there is doctrine that is so important to the Christian life. In going through the Gospel of John, I've had several of you come to me and say, I can't wait till John 6. And then I've had several saying, it's going to be interesting to see what you do with John 6. Because this passage of Scripture holds for us such immense and beautiful truth that when we look at a passage like this, we just let it rest on our hearts Because of the gravity and immensity of this chapter, I'm planning on taking the rest of John chapter 6 in three parts. It might be four. It won't be less than three. Because I think understanding the motivation behind Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, understanding what he's saying when he says, I am the bread of life, And all the implications of that statement is such an important concept for the Christian. I'd like to, um, if it were, marinate in this chapter a little bit. And so we're going to look this morning at verses 22 through verse 35. And we'll see the introduction really to his statement, I am the bread of life. We can call this the background the motivations for Christ statement, or if you want to be really boring like I have in my notes, you can just call this the bread of life part one, okay? And so let's look at verse 22, and we'll read down through verse 35 uh, once again to kind of get our bearings, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on this time together. On the next day, this is the day after the feeding of the multitude, The crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered into the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, You're not seeking, you are seeking me, you are seeking me, but not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, what must we do to literally work the works of God? What do we need to do to please God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. You sure you can't give us some manna? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God, as we look into these passages of Scripture, I ask that you would give us eyes to see that we may see you and believe you. I ask that you would give us ears to hear that we may hear your teaching, that we may not be misguided by others who have perhaps led wrongly in accordance with this passage, but that we would embrace what your scripture is clearly teaching as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. high school, I've had the opportunity to hike 100 plus miles of the Appalachian Trail, not all at once, but in portions. One of the joys of growing up in a, in a family that treasured the outdoors was peop, uh, my parents and uh, friends mo- being motivated to spend time outside. And so we had these, uh, this brilliant idea that we were going to uh, section off 50 to 60 miles of the Appalachian Trail and uh, have somebody drop us off on Monday and pick us up on Saturday and uh, take everything on our backs and tackle a certain portion of the, of the mountains there on the Appalachian Trail. And, uh, and it was an amazing time. So I had the opportunity to do that several times. On our very first trip, um, there was a group of 12 of us, two sponsors and 10 teenagers, who set out on our very first trip on the Appalachian Trail. We drove to Virginia, to a portion that goes through Virginia, and um, the caravan, there were two vans that dropped us off, and um, they weren't quite sure because one of them was a mother of the teenagers, the other one was the wife of one of the sponsors, and we pulled up next to what our map said was the drop-off point and the place where the trail crossed the road as often happens. And on the Appalachian Trail, there are just paintings, uh, these little uh, paint marks that would lead you along the way. It's pretty well-traveled, but in areas where you can't see it as much, there's uh, marks along the way. So we get dropped off, and we look, and sure enough, there's a mark on a tree right there. And our guide, the sponsor who was in charge, said, here we go, we're going to set off on the Appalachian Trail. And of course, I still have pictures somewhere of us hiking up the mountain on this trail, waving down at the road, not realizing that it was the wrong trail. Our guide was confident. He had read the maps but had never experienced this part of the trail. We looked down the road and about 150 feet down the road, um, there are are some hikers looking very curiously at us as they wave to us and we wave to them. They go into the woods and we go into different woods marching up the trail. We hiked for about 45 minutes and it was a little bit concerning because as the guy who was leading the group uh, noted the, the, the trail we were on gradually widened and joined a driving, a, a, a parking, not a parking lot, but like a driveway, and we hiked past two houses. 
And our guide said, this is really unique. I didn't know houses were on the Appalachian Trail. And then a car pulls up and rolls down his window and says, what do you think you're doing? You're on private property. And our guide, the person who was leading the way, said, no, we're on the Appalachian Trail. And the guy said, no, you're not. The Appalachian Trail is that way. And so we had the joy on our very first day of hiking 45 plus minutes in, 45 plus minutes back, 150 feet down the road to simply begin our journey. We were, you could say, misguided and we didn't even know it. Someone else who knew the truth came along beside us and said, I know you have great intentions and I know that you think you are on the right path, but in fact, you've been misled. You've been misguided. What we see in this passage of Scripture, verses 22 through verse 34, is we see a group of misguided people. We see them seeking Jesus, but in fact, they are misguided. And Jesus comes along beside them, teaching them and saying, actually, you're misguided. And they keep saying, no, we're on the right trail. And he keeps saying, actually, you're not. You think you're on the right trail, but you're not. You think you're hiking the Appalachian Trail, but this is private property. Jesus is saying, you, you, you think that you're on the right road, but you're not. And, and it's a gut check for all of us. I remember that moment of panic when we as a group realized we're on the wrong trail and the look of the guy who was leading the group, if you've ever led a group like that and you've been in charge and you realize you're in the wrong place, there's this moment of how far off am I? What in the world is going on? How do I get us back on the right path? And there's this kind of moment of panic and I think we've all been there to some degree or another where we realize that somewhere along the way we've been misled and we're coming to grips with the truth. And so in order to understand the phrase, I am the bread of life, we have to understand that Jesus is in fact offering truth that stands against this group of people who have been misguided. They've been misled. And so my goal for the message this morning is twofold. Number one, I first want you to understand what this errant view is. And so you can see it's still evidenced around us today. And so you thus can avoid this trap and know how to address them, address this trap, this false belief as wrong. So it's to see this wrong belief and recognize it and to avoid it. But secondly, it also serves to examine our own heart to see if perhaps we have been misguided in a way in our own life. And that's always a little bit nerve-wracking, isn't it? There, there is a sense of humility to say what I have thought may be wrong. Maybe this is because your own misunderstandings of Scripture. Maybe you don't know the Bible Maybe you've never read the Bible before. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian, or you're here and you've just been saved and you've been misguided because you simply don't know the Bible. Or perhaps 
You're misguided because someone has pointed you in the wrong direction. And the Holy Spirit will come along in your heart this morning and say, friend, you've been misguided in this area. Let's redirect onto the right path. I hesitate to even think about what would have happened if the person leading our group did not have the humility to recognize that he was wrong. I can't have, I I read the map, I know I'm in the right place. He must be wrong, let's just keep going. And the further and further you get away from the trailhead, the harder it is to come back. Above all, let us devote ourselves to the teachings of Christ with a humble heart that we may not be misguided this morning. And with that in mind, I would like to show you in verses 22 through 26, misguided seekers. Misguided seekers. Pastor Joe, where do you get that? End of verse 24, they were seeking Jesus. And Jesus confirms this in verse 26. You are seeking me. So we could call this group, first of all, misguided in their seeking. Or if we want to talk about them as a group, they are misguided seekers. The first characteristic of these misguided seekers that we need to recognize is that misguided seekers often seek a Jesus. They seek a Jesus. This group of people was insistent on finding Jesus. They weren't looking for another prophet. They they were looking for Jesus, so much so that they got into boats and said, we don't know where Jesus went. We know where the disciples went. We saw them. We don't know where Jesus went, but we're going to go look for him. These boats had, had come along the shore. They rented them. They coerced them. We don't know. But somehow these people ended up in those boats trying to find their way across the boat to, to, across the lake to look for Jesus. Maybe those who weren't in the boat began the long jogging trek around the Sea of Galilee, checking And looking for Jesus, they were seeking him. You may be tempted to think that misguided seekers only seek Allah or Buddha or other leaders of cults and religions. That, oh, you're you're seeking wrong because you're seeking the wrong name of God or you're seeking the wrong religion. But this is not the case because misguided seekers could run after one that they refer to as Jesus. Maybe this false Jesus is someone that one of their friends has told them about or they've been led astray by a false teacher. Or maybe even this Jesus is a Jesus of their own imagination. I'd like to warn you of phrases like, well, the Jesus that I see would never, as if somehow you can guesstimate on Jesus' character. Or perhaps the phrase, I just can't believe that a loving God would, and then fill in the blank. These are phrases of those who are, rather than looking to Scripture and say, Lord, tell me about who you are, saying, I have preconceived conceptions that Jesus could never be like this, that somehow in my mind I've set set up these parameters and, and my Jesus has to fit between these parameters and I'm going to reinterpret passages of Scripture or perhaps ignore other passages of Scripture so that the Jesus that, that I want can fit into my box. 
Do you always be aware of someone would say, well, the God that I know would never, rather than saying, let's see what the Bible says about who Jesus is, and let's choose to believe it. Let's see what the Bible says about the character of God and choose to drop our anchors there. Just because someone says that they believe in Jesus or that Jesus even is their Savior does not mean that they have a correct view of Jesus or have accepted the biblical Jesus. Ben and I do a podcast every week on ministry discussions. It's called The Community Connection. We are in the process of working through a series on on the podcast on uh, evangelization, how to give the gospel. And a couple weeks ago, we did one on giving the gospel to Mormons. And, and early on in my, in my life, my parents had a strong desire to bring the true gospel into those who've been blinded by the Mormon faith. And so we often in our home had Mormon missionaries eating dinner with us and afterwards doing Bible studies. And I'll never forget being so confused as a child because a Mormon missionary looked at my dad and said, no, you don't understand. We, we agree that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We've embraced him as our Savior. We're the same. And then my dad looking across the table and says, that may be what you think, but the problem is your Jesus and my Jesus are not the same Jesus is that who you define as Jesus doesn't exist. And so a Jesus that is created and is a half-brother to Satan and, and is a created being and is less than God the Father isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful. They were seeking Jesus, but they were misguided. This is what the parable of the soils is all about in Mark chapter 4, that there's Three of those groups of people who embraced the truth, but when the truth was different than what they wanted, they walked away. And we can get into that in another message, or if you have questions about that, I'd love to look at that passage of Scripture with you to show you that just because someone says they believe Jesus does not mean that they are embracing by grace through faith the God of the Bible. These were misguided seekers. So who is Jesus? That's very important for us to clarify, isn't it? Jesus is God incarnate, the Son of God, truly God and truly man. He came to this earth driven by compassion and love for fallen humanity. He lived the perfect life you cannot live and died the sacrificial death that you deserve because of your sin. Through his death on the cross, he paid the price for sin. He then conquered death by resurrecting from the dead and is today seated in heaven with the Father. And if you turn to that Jesus, turn from your sin to Christ, you will find forgiveness from sin. You will find eternal life and a reconciled relationship with the Father. That is what Jesus offers, forgiveness and eternal life. Misguided seekers seek a Jesus, but if they are misguided in their seeking, they will not seek that biblical Jesus. Secondly, I'd like to show you in verses 23 to 22 to 26 that misguided seekers seek that which promises fulfillment of temporal needs. Why was this group seeking Jesus? Jesus says it this way, you are seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
They thought that Jesus was there to meet their physical needs. I'm seeking him because I'm hungry again. I have to eat every day, and, or I want to eat every day, and yesterday you fed us, and so I'm seeking you again today so that you can give us food. They could only see what they had experienced. If they could only see beyond what they could see, they would have realized that Jesus was offering them so much more than a physical meal. But in order to see beyond what they could see, you could put it this way, in order to see the kingdom of God, in order to see the spiritual realm, in order to recognize their sin and see Christ as their Savior, they needed life from God in John chapter 3. God would need to reveal to them their need for a Savior. We see this pictured in Pilgrim's Progress If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that at the beginning of the book, Christian has this burden on him that others don't seem to recognize. And the the, the knowledge of this burden came through what? Through reading the book. And as we see it as, as an allegory, we see that the knowledge of sin comes through reading the Bible. That without the truth of Scripture, there is no consciousness of sin. Without the drawing hand of God on someone's life, there is no desire to be free from the burden of sin. And Pilgrim's great desire in the first part of the book was to be rid of his burden. It wasn't for ease, as was so many of his companions. So when he fell into the slough of despond, With his burden weighing him down, what motivates him to exit the slough of despond and continue on his journey was to be free from the burden that's on his back. And it's John Bunyan so clearly demonstrating through this beautiful story the recognition that those who are drawn to salvation, understanding the burden of sin on their life, are compelled to the cross to find forgiveness from sin. And those who joined Pilgrim for such a short time, compelled because of ease of life or something that they can get temporally in this world, fell off along the way because they realized that was not the mission of God. Jesus' great promise is forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with the Father. And so as we think about, quote-unquote, seekers... There's a whole group out there, out there somewhere, that the church in the past 50 years has really um, tried to reach called seekers. And so there's an entire model of church that is built around this model, and they call themselves seeker-sensitive. So when someone comes in and they're seeking the truth, when they are seeking answers, we need to be sensitive to those seekers. And so we build an entire, uh, an entire polity, an entire organization of the way that we do church, an entire pragmatic philosophy of church ministry around this idea that there are those out there who are seeking and we need to change everything in order to cater to those unsaved who are seeking, and I'd like to give you maybe just two truths that would guide us in this mindset. The first truth is this. 
all genuine seekers are being drawn by God and are driven by God to seek forgiveness of sin. When someone is being drawn by God, the truth of the scriptures resonates in their heart. Therefore, the solution that needs to be given to these seekers is truth. We don't need to change our methods and change our message in order to cater to those who are looking for entertainment because Jesus doesn't offer entertainment. He offers forgiveness. In that in our method of evangelism, we don't need to change the message of the gospel so that it won't offend a sensitive culture because those whom God is drawing and are seeking the truth, their hearts resonate with the truth of the gospel. And so our ministry and our efforts are anchored in truth. And thus we continue to center everything in our personal and our corporate ministry on the truth. Secondly, another truth that would guide us. Not only all genuine seekers are being drawn by God and are driven to seek forgiveness from sin, but in our message of the gospel, we need to correctly identify who Jesus is. Our identification of who Jesus is and what he's done must come from Scripture. This is the entire purpose of the Gospel of John. It may be that at the end of the Gospel of John, you think, man, Pastor Joe was really Johnny OneNote the whole time. And, and that's because John says, this is my purpose. That you would correctly identify who Jesus is and that you may find life by believing in his name. And so as John continues to harp on this message, so we continue to sit here as well. In that our gospel appeal should not be filled with statements or overtones that would suggest that Jesus has come to improve people's lives here on this earth or to suggest that Jesus promises health and wealth. But our gospel message should be anchored into the appeal to man's greatest need. You have a sin problem and God is your solution. You are spiritually dead and God offers life. And that Jesus came to earn every bit of merit that anyone would ever need and to die the sacrificial death that you deserve. And if you place your faith and trust in him alone, you will find freedom and forgiveness from your sin. And so in verses 22 to 26, we first see misguided, misguided seekers. In verses 27 to 29, we see misguided workers. Misguided workers. The word work is all the way through here. Labor, work. Verse 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we work to do the work of God? And Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe. Now before we look at this, I think we need to make an introductory note in these verses that Jesus is in no way referring to laziness and you don't need to work hard. It's not what he's saying. The work that Jesus is referring to here is a dominant life passion. These passages are not an excuse for laziness. And he's not condemning your secular employment. 
He is addressing the fact that these people have spent all their time and energy looking for Jesus. They're passionate about finding Jesus because they're passionate about filling their own bellies. I remember in high school being very passionate about all sorts of things that did not include schoolwork, right? I remember being creative in my thought processes on how not to do schoolwork. And I remember my parents admonishing me and saying, if you were as passionate about your studies as you were about this, your grades would be a whole lot better. Or if if someone who plans to rob a bank would put all of that thought process and effort into a job, they would actually make a living. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying all of your effort and your identity is going to the wrong place. If you would work as hard, if you would if you would do your best to try to understand what I'm telling you, maybe your life would be different. Don't work like this for food that perishes. Work for that which endures to eternal life. And so these statements Christ is giving in verse 27 and 29 need to be stated in the positive so we don't misunderstand what Christ is saying. So look at verse 27. Verse 27 says this, work for that which endures to eternal life. And then in verse 29, the work that pleases God, contrary enough, is not work at all. It's faith. So let's look at these individually. Misguided workers dedicate their lives to the temporal. Do not dedicate your life, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes. Do not dedicate your life to the pursuit of that which will rust or be corrupted. I was watching an interview with a very, 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 very wealthy man, one of the most wealthiest men in the entire world. And the interviewer asked the question, what is it like to be this wealthy? What is it like to have this much money? And he said, I don't think you understand my situation. Almost all, he said something like 98% or something, high 90s percentage of his wealth was wrapped up in stocks and bonds that were already earmarked to nonprofits once he died. He said, I, I don't need all of this. I can't spend all of this. The only thing that I can do is give it away. He said, I'd be happy with just a small number, given numbered salary of, of living on this for the rest of my life. And I'd be happy. I'd have everything I need. He drives a Toyota Camry, eats at McDonald's two or three times a week. Normal guy. And what's sad is that some of our Christians would look to someone with wealth like that and dedicate their whole life to try to amass a fortune like that and give themselves to money, to the pursuit of more, to the amassing of toys which rust and corrupt, especially in Indiana, right? Listen to Luke chapter 12. 
beginning in verse 15. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let's pause there, friend. Are you tempted to find your identity in what you own? He told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? Many of you know this parable in Luke chapter 12. And he said, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. What a tragedy it would be to live your life in pursuit of stuff. And what a greater tragedy to live your life in pursuit of stuff, to never be able to enjoy anything that you've earned and to die and to spend eternity separated from God because you've been misguided in your heart. Does that mean that a Christian can't be wealthy? Absolutely not. Wealth is not a sign of sinfulness at all. But the love of money, covetousness, is the root of all sorts of evil. Mark chapter 8 says it this way, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Friend, are you working for that which endures? For me to live is Christ and to die is to gain more Christ. For the pursuit of God is the only pursuit that you will gain more of when you die. Matthew chapter 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Joe, are you saying that I can't have a secular job? No. Are you saying that I can't make a lot of money? No. My dad, when he passed, I know my dad was one of my, was, is my greatest mentor. I know I quote him a lot. He's made such an impact in my life, and I've learned so much from him because he was in the business world and gave it up in order to pastor a small church, 12 people. Seven of them were our family, and, and he, sold, he sold his family-owned business and went into, the, went into ministry, and not everybody needs to do that, but that's what God had planned for him, and so he... He was talking to one of his businessmen, and, and, and this guy was guilty because he said, God's called me to the business world. I'm making tons of money. What do I do with it? Should I be guilty about this? And my dad very wisely said, no, make as much money as you can and give it to Jesus. Because every dollar that you make from an unsaved person, you can use for righteousness, right? So make as much as you can for the kingdom and give it to mission endeavors. Leverage it for, for, for God, and I've been privileged to know some godly, wealthy people. I was actually just several weeks ago speaking with a man who, through a series of, of utilizing the gifting that God gave him with his mind, came up with an invention and sold it and came into wealth that is beyond anything that I could even comprehend. Like beyond wealthy. And I talked to him and he he was talking about the burden of wealth, and he said to me, one of my greatest joys is, is meeting gospel needs without even thinking about it. Like writing a check for tens of thousands of dollars because there's a gospel need somewhere, and saying, yeah, I can meet that, no problem. 
because his identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ and serving with the teenagers in a little church as a lay youth leader and loving them to Christ. That's what Jesus is referring to here. Your primary motivation, your identity. Is it something that will last for eternity? Are you first a disciple of Christ? Is Christ the hub through which all of the spokes of your life are connected to? Or is he just one of your pursuits? Are you working for that which endures? Misguided workers spend their lives laying up for themselves treasures on this earth where they find decay, unsaved people. Their heart is given to that solely. And believers, some believers find that a true struggle. Friend, if I can encourage you, give yourself to the pursuit of that which endures. Secondly, misguided workers try to earn merit through their works. The question posed to Christ is this. What work do I need to do to do what God requires? It's not a it's not a, uh, a rare question in the New Testament. We see it even in the uh, rich young ruler. What do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? What, what can I do? Tell me what I need to do to be right with God. What do I need to do? And Jesus flips it right on his head. And it's a verse that many people misunderstood because they, they would then view that belief is the work that God requires. And that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is you are so far off the mark. The work that God requires isn't work at all. It's faith. You want to know what work God requires? No work. You want to know what work God requires? It's just belief. That's what God requires for salvation. There's nothing, Jesus is saying, that you can do to take you one step towards God if you're not a Christian. You can't do anything to improve your position before God. There's no such thing as a person who's almost saved. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, one of the greatest works on the Gospel of John, analytically, that's been done. D.A. Carson says the following, faith, referencing this verse here. Faith with proper Christological object. Faith in the one whom you sent, in the one that God sent, Jesus says. Faith in me. That is what God requires, not works in any modern sense of the term. And even the faith that we must exercise is the fruit of God's activity, verses 44 and verses 65. That's what Jesus is saying. It's no work at all. There's no, if you're here and you're not a Christian, listen carefully. There's nothing that you can do to make God like you. There's nothing that you can do to become a little bit more Christianly. And our doctrinal statement rightly has such a focus on this since we live in an area that is filled with personal merit from a Catholic perspective. Listen to, to, to number eight in our salvation uh, statement, in, in our doctrinal statement on salvation. This is what we have covenanted to believe together as members. We believe that owing to this universal depravity and death and sin, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless born again. And listen, listen to how it's spelled out in our doctrinal statement. No degree of reformation, however great. No attainment in morality, however high. No culture, however attractive. No humanitarian and philanthropic schemes in societies, however useful. No baptism or other ordinance, however administered, can help the sinner take even one step towards heaven. 
You can't get to God. You can't even start. But a new life, this section concludes, implanted by the Holy Spirit through the word is absolutely essential to salvation. If you're not a Christian, stop trying to get to God. You can't. That's why Jesus came. Because you can't earn your way there. That's what, God, that's what Jesus is telling them here. This is the work. It's not a work. It's belief. Now, we need to ask the question, why can't our work get us to heaven? Because there's something in every one of us that wants to try, isn't there? There's something in... There, it, when you say the statement, the only thing that you bring to the table in your salvation is your sin, there's something in all of us that goes, oh, come on, it can't really be that bad, can it? I mean, I know, <laughs> I know I've done some things wrong, but it's not that bad. I mean, I'm not that bad. I'm not full of that much sin. Why? Well, amazingly, when we ask that question, it's given to us right here in our text. Look down at the end of verse 27. For on him, Jesus, the God the Father, has set his seal. Why are all of your works useless? In coming to Christ. Why are all of your works useless in coming to God? Because there's only one person who lived that perfect, righteous life. There is only one person whom God the Father has looked at as a human on this earth and said, in you I am well, what's the word? Pleased. There is only one human, truly man, in everything that it means to be human, and truly God, in everything that it means to be God, unified together in the person of Christ. There is only one human being that God sees as able to come to him because of his righteousness, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, your Christian life is not about doing things that are good enough. It's either about being perfect or not being perfect. It's like a beautiful pane of glass. You ever seen those trucks going on the highway with those braces and there's like a giant sheet of glass and they're like all these rubber stops to make sure it doesn't break, you know? I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's the child in me, right? You're just like, I would love to see one of those just shattered. Just, I, don't want, I don't want anybody to have to pay for it and all that kind of stuff, but... It's just something that's crazy about, about a giant pane of glass, glass just shattering, right? If you had a 20 foot by 20 foot pane of glass behind me, how many rocks would you have to throw through it for it to no longer be a perfect pane of glass? Just one. I used to be able to use this illustration with teenagers. I can't anymore because they have no idea what I'm talking about. But there used to be this thing with a phone on the wall that had this little curly thing that came out of it and plugged into the wall called a cord, right? And, and it was amazing because usually you had one phone in your house that the cord was like 100 feet long. And the only way you could talk is if the cord was connected. 
And if we wanted to talk to somebody in Indianapolis and it was a direct line phone, maybe we'd have a phone here and a phone there with a cord going all the way from here to Indianapolis and we could talk to each other. And in order to break that conversation, you would only need to cut it in one place. You drive from here to Kokomo or maybe here almost all the way down to Indy or maybe just to the end of Miami and you cut that cord. doesn't matter where you cut it. You just need one and the whole thing is severed. And it's like that with your relationship with God, friend. You sin because you're a sinner. And nothing that you can do can earn you perfection because you've already sinned. The only one through whom the Father has set his seal is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who is the receiver of the seal of the Father. And if you're thinking right now, you're probably saying, Pastor Joe, you've just given a giant contradiction. Because a few minutes earlier, you just said, work for work that endures. And now you're looking and you're saying, none of your work matters. So which one is it? They both are true. As a believer, we're called to give ourselves to good works. As a believer, why? Because our works are bound up through faith in who? Through faith in Christ. And so the good works that we, that we participate in are good works done in faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Works done by an unbeliever, fueled by sin. Works done in darkness. Works done by a believer, done not in faith, are works of the flesh. Works done by a believer in faith are works that are faith-filled works through Christ that give us the strength to live a life pleasing to God. Working through faith through obedience to the word of God, realizing that you can't do anything to please God because Christ has already done it all. And so in your life, through your faith, in dependence on God, in obedience to his word, we give ourselves to faith-filled works. We'll come back to that later on in this chapter. Lastly, I'd like you to see the misguided interpreters. Misguided interpreters. We have misguided seekers, misguided workers, and now misguided interpreters. It, it really is amazing the incredible blindness of these people. Have you ever looked at the actions of unsaved people and been blown away by the blindness that's exhibited towards Christ? Don't ever underestimate the power of the darkness they see him, and they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? These are the people who just were fed the day before. I mean, they just saw Christ take loaves and fishes and miraculously duplicate over and over and over again. And then they come to him and they say, wait a minute, how, how'd you get here? Because you weren't in the boat, and yet you're here. How did you get here? I don't know whether someone said, well, he walked. I, I don't know. 
But if they did, they now have two evidences, at least one, that just happened the day before, which shows us that a person who is unsaved, blinded by the darkness, doesn't need more information. They need a heart change. They don't need more signs. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're like, I'm just waiting for God to show up in a way that he's never showed up before, and the minute that I see a miracle, I believe. No, you won't, because the miracle that you're seeing is the Scripture being proclaimed to you. They don't need more information. I mean, what sign do you do? Are you kidding me? He just fed 15 to 20,000 people with this little lunch. Then they have the audacity to, to quote the Old Testament and try to leverage God through a misinterpretation of the word to get what they want. Our fathers ate man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What's happening here? Well, this group of people were challenging Jesus to prove that he was, in fact, better than Moses. Their argument is this. Moses provided manna for the entire nation of Israel in the wilderness. You say you're a prophet claiming to be better than Moses because you say you come from God. You gave bread to us yesterday. Prove to us that you're better than Moses by continuing to give us bread today. That's what they're saying. I know that's a Jewish person would understand what they're saying because he's speaking in the synagogue. They're referencing manna. Hey, Moses gave him manna every day. This is going to be a great following. We found the ticket to never having to work for our own food again. Prove it to us. What sign do you do? Quoting Nehemiah 9.15. You know, may it never be said of us that we would weaponize Scripture to try to manipulate God. I tried this on my parents one time. I was homeschooled, and I had gotten caught for not being totally honest on a test. I know that shocks you guys, but that was a part of my childhood. And I took my mom to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, and I said, Scripture's clear. Look not every man on his own things, but also on the things of others. You're telling me I shouldn't have looked there before I answered this question. Well, Scripture says I should look there. I cannot look only on my own test. I must look also to the tests of others. It did not work. And you laugh, but friends, we need to be careful not to do the same. Oh, so careful that when we say the Bible says, we better be sure the Bible says. That when we say Jesus taught, we better be able to turn to this verse and look in context and say, yes, this is the truth. This is what Jesus intended. This is why we go so slowly. This is why we read carefully. This is why we study that we may not fall into the trap that these misguided interpreters fell into. To try to manipulate God into doing something. Not only that, but misguided interpreters, they miss the entire message of the Old Testament. Verse 33 tells us the Old Testament centers around Christ. For the bread of God, verse 33, is he who comes down from heaven. Manna was a type. It was a picture. It was a foreshadowing 
of Christ. They were challenging Jesus to do something greater than Moses. They misunderstood that the manna that came down from heaven was a picture of Christ given by the Father, not by Moses. That God gave them manna and Jesus steps forward and says just like that manna was given by God to preserve them in the wilderness, so I am the bread of life given by God to meet your greatest need. The exodus from sin. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I know we reference that a lot, but friends, if you read the Old Testament and you miss Christ, you've missed the whole purpose. It's not every word and every phrase we have to read Christ into it. It's that everything is a giant arrow pointing to Jesus. That David slaying Goliath is not about you slaying the problems in your life. It's about Christ defeating the greatest problem you could ever have. And that God being sufficient to provide a servant to defeat Goliath. And it's not you, it's Christ. That all of those stories and pictures in the Old Testament are a giant arrow that point to Jesus. So we cannot miss that. We cannot miss that. The manna in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of Christ, and that is what Christ is saying over and over and over and over and over again to these people. Not only that, but the Old Testament foreshadows a message that's bigger than just the nation of Israel. Jesus here in this one little phrase At the end of verse 33, look down in your Bibles with me to verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. And then he has an earth-shattering statement. Manna was given to Israel. No one outside the nation of Israel received manna from God. And Jesus blows those gates wide open. And he says, I am the bread of life who's come to give life to the world. The message of the gospel is not contained to just Israel. Over and over and over again, this is the message of Christ. And this should not have been a shock to the nation of Israel. I mean, we could go back even to Mount Sinai and, and, and show that Jesus is setting Israel apart so that the entire world would look on with jealousy, that they would see the mercy of God, and thus they would commit themselves to the God of Israel. Even in Malachi chapter 3, the last chapter of the Old Testament in verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed. As you see this, this picture that God is offering, it should not have been a shock to the Jews that the floodgates of salvation are opened beyond the nation of Israel. But they were blinded by pride in their darkness. And so we recognize Christ's statement as a profession that the message of the gospel cannot be limited by language, ethnic, or cultural boundaries. It is a message for the world. A bread of life to give life to the world. And he keeps going back over and over again. And what is their response? Can't you just give us manna, please? But what about that bread? 
give us this bread always. Like, like please, the manna that came down every day. Jesus, that, that's great. Like, you're the bread of life. Don't really understand that. Kind of weird. But, I, okay, you come from heaven. Okay, trying to get past that. Can't you just give us lunch? And we see that the darkness blinds the eyes and stops the ears that would hear the truth. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Listen to the next phrase. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. John chapter 1 and verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So are you a misguided seeker, worker, interpreter this morning? Are you here and you're not a Christian? And maybe for the first time, this light is shining into your heart. You feel compelled, drawn to the truth, pulled in as many who are converted would testify. Would you believe on Jesus this morning? Cast yourself at the feet of Christ. Throw everything you have onto Christ. Place your faith and trust in him alone for salvation and find forgiveness from your sin. Find freedom that's offered through Christ. And believer, let us be careful not to be misguided by the flesh that's still so prevalent in our lives, that raises its head so often as we struggle with the things of this world and we struggle with sin would we find our guide in Christ? Would we find the truth of Scripture? And there would we drop our anchor. And there would we find a truth that brings rest and hope to our soul. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the truth of Scripture as we are working our way through this incredible passage I pray that this morning, if there's one here who's not a Christian, that they would call out to you in faith. That they would recognize the inadequacy of their works to gain even one step towards heaven. And that they would throw themselves in, out of dependence into the arms of Christ by faith alone, seeing that they fall short and seeing Christ as their only answer. And God, we also pray for the Christians that are here that we would never fall into the trap of legalism, somehow thinking that our works gain us any favor or merit with God, but yet are just called to work in faith, giving ourselves to that which is eternal, identifying ourselves as a disciple of Christ, that we would not be misguided in wanting something from you that you've never promised to provide, and that we would devote ourselves to the proper reading and understanding of Scripture. May you give us grace to accomplish that task as the only strength can come from you.